What's going on, Red Rocks Church? You guys happy to be alive? We look good. I hope you feel good. You can take a seat. Welcome to church. I bring you greetings from our Red Rocks location in Austin, Texas. They all told me to tell you hi. I have uh, been married to my beautiful wife, the love of my life, Sam, for six years. Hi, babe. She's not watching this. No, I'm kidding. She is. Our little guy, Will, just had his second birthday last week. Oh, they grow up so fast. I'm totally like that dad now who says all those cliches. They grow up. They really do, though. What are you going to do? And then baby number two is due at the beginning of December. Thank you. Thank you for congratulating me on doing the one thing I think about more than anything else. I, I appreciate that. Except Jesus, Ronnie. I just have a feeling there's going to be a strong contingency of babies born between December and February. Just a hunch. The quarantennial generation. Turns out there are more forms of entertainment during quarantine other than Netflix. And all the married people said, amen. There we go. Well, whoever you are, wherever you're watching this from, whatever you might be going through right now, I want you to know that you have a good father. You have a good God and he sees you and he loves you and he knows you and he knows what you're going through and he will get you through whatever it is you're going through. And if you need good news right about now, you are in the right place. We gather, we do this because of good news, amen? That's what the word gospel means, good news. It's the reason Jesus came was to bring good news. Luke 4. 43. Jesus said, I must proclaim the what? The good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, to everybody, because that is why I was sent. Jesus preached the arrival of the kingdom of heaven over 100 times in the New Testament. Over a hundred times. Jesus said, I'm here to open the door to the kingdom. You guys are here to colonize earth with it. Jesus came to make an invisible God visible in the same way the church is here to make an invisible kingdom visible and real and tangible and something you can experience with your five senses through what we say and what we do. That's culture. Culture is a specific way of walking and talking. And when we walk and talk with the kingdom of heaven in mind, we create a kingdom culture on earth. Our calling, your calling, my calling is kingdom come in my life, in your life, in my family, in your home, at my job, in your King Supers, at your gym, in Denver, in Austin, in Brussels, in your city, in our church, as it is in heaven. Amen. Kingdom culture. So here we go. Luke 18, 9 through 14. This is, this is an interesting, slightly ridiculous story. And you'll see why in just a second. To some who were, I love this first verse, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Thank God none of us can relate to this. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee. So this is, a, this is an elite Jewish man of God, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Cool guy, right? Robbers, 
evildoers, adulterers, my goodness, or especially like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. I don't blame him. Tax collectors were hated at a fever pitch in this day. Tax collectors were essentially considered traitors. They collected taxes from their own people who already couldn't afford it and gave that money to the Roman Empire, the empire that was oppressing the Jewish people, okay? So tax collectors were the scum of the universe, the sinners. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even, so he knows, he would not even look up to heaven, man. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, it's this man rather than the other who actually went home justified before God. For all, I love this, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So for week three of Kingdom Culture, I I wanted to call this message words Christians really should say that we hardly ever say. And if we're being honest, we don't really wanna say because they're tough to say, but really the world would be better off if we did say them. But that's kind of a mouthful and a little public speaking tip that's not effective. And so for the sake of effectiveness, we're just gonna call this sermon four things Christians should say more often. If you're taking notes, four things Christians should say more often. Pray with me. Jesus, speak to us. We're listening. We humble ourselves. We open our ears. Be glorified in our church. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, Scott. You made that sound so good, man. Don't go far. What are you gonna do for the next 20 minutes? Travel, watch me. I never know what he's doing back there. I'll see you soon, man. Culture, culture and words have sort of an interesting relationship. Have you noticed this? For instance, all I have to do is say a few words in the right order, and I bet you could tell me the culture or organization or company that those words are associated with. For instance, all I gotta say is, Eat fresh, and you know, Subway. Okay, so let's, let's keep trying this. Here we go. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, I'm la- McDonald's. There it is. Okay, this one's a little bit more tricky. See, if you get it, shout it out. Yum. Red Robin. Red Robin. Okay, can you tell I'm hungry right now? We should probably, let's, let's mix it up. What's in your wallet? Capital One. Are you in good hands, Taylor? That's all state. So easy, a caveman could do it. That's Geico, is it in you? That's Gatorade, obey your thirst, that's Sprite. Just do it, that's Nike. How about this, making heaven more crowded? Red Rocks Church, okay? Language creates culture, it just does. At Chick-fil-A, they say, my pleasure, right? It's part of their culture. At Red Rocks, we say stuff like, imperfect people pursuing a perfect God. God's just getting started. The best is yet to come. Can you believe we get to do this? It's part of our culture. Language creates culture. And it's important, especially in the kingdom of heaven, because you can make God beautiful to your friends by the way you talk about him. You can make people wonder about the kingdom with your words alone. 
When we talk with the kingdom of heaven in mind, we create a kingdom culture on earth. So here we go. Four things Christians should say more often. Number one, here it is. I don't know. Oh, I'm fired up already because all of these, I feel like, are a little unexpected. All right, I'm so excited for this message. I don't know. Let's go back to that first verse of that story, verse nine. To some who were confident in their own righteousness, you could also say their rightness, confident in their own rightness and look down on everyone else. So I'll be the culprit first, okay? Church, I confess this to you. I have given people directions, true story. I've given people directions when I was not entirely sure on the way, okay? I don't know, like I just felt like I had to have an answer, like I didn't wanna be rude. So I'm giving them directions even though I didn't know the way and as I'm giving directions, I'm like believing myself, (laughs) confident in my own rightness, And I have no reason to be. You remember that Beats by Dre commercial with the headphones? I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. And I believe every lie I've ever told. There's something to that. It's crazy. Jesus is telling this story to those who were confident in their own rightness. Church, be careful of any Christian who will confidently tell you, this is why COVID is happening. Like, well, you might be right. Somebody's right. But confidently, man, as Christian leaders, man, like, I feel the pressure to have answers for stuff. I do. People want answers. But let me tell you, like, right now, maybe the most refreshing thing that you can say and the the most refreshing three words that you can hear, and here they are, I don't know. Judah Smith I've learned so much about language and Christian culture from him. In fact, I got this phrase, I don't know, from him. He says, I pray the days of Christians being know-it-alls is over. I just, I love that. Because those who think they know it all are so annoying to those of us who actually do. (laughs) Do not amen that, my goodness. Can I just go on record right now publicly as a pastor and let you know there are so many times, especially right now, that I just don't know. And that's okay. Even right now in a pandemic season when people want answers and I don't blame them. I do too. People are hurting right now. I mean, people are losing jobs and losing loved ones and doubting God and wanting to know, like, why would God let me go through something like this? Why would God allow something like this to happen? And recently, the best answer I got is, ah, I don't know. I've got ideas, but I don't know. And I refuse to be the guy who gives cold comfort at the wrong time. You know what I'm talking about, cold comfort? Maybe you've been on the receiving end of cold comfort. It's usually a well-meaning Christian who quotes Romans chapter eight, verse 28 to you at the wrong time. Like, brother, God's gonna work everything out for the good of those who love him. And you're like, bro, she just broke up with me last night, man. Like, I know that. I need to be mad. I need you to be mad with me right now, right? You wanna just quote, like punch that guy in the face and quote the same verse back to him. 
Hey, don't worry, God's gonna work out that black eye for your good because you love him. Take heart, brother, right? I've learned this from hospital visits. You don't always need all the right answers. Way more often than not, the power of your presence is everything. I don't know. You are allowed to say that. Listen to me. God does not need you to be his defense attorney. It is good to have things to say and be prepared. It is helpful. That, that, that is so true. But there's also times, man, where it's completely okay to say, I, I don't know, but I'm here. I don't know, but I'm here. Think about the disciples on that boat during the storm. I read the, like, through that story so quickly, but that story is so ridiculous because all they were trying to do was get to the other side of the lake because Jesus told them to cross to the other side of the lake. You ever feel like you're just trying to do what God's telling you to do and it's storming on your life? And you're like, gosh, like, why, why the storms? I don't always know. Sometimes it just storms. Sometimes bad days just happen. Okay, well, why does it feel like Jesus is taking a nap on my boat in the middle of my storm? <laughs> I don't always know. I know he's a good, good father. I know he's a good God. I know he is who he says he is. He'll be faithful to carry you on to completion. I know he's gonna get you to the other side. I know every valley has one thing in common. They all end. And I know once you get to the other side, you will be better off and stronger than you are now. Like I know all of that stuff, but in the moment right now, man, I, I just, I, I don't know. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. That's Isaiah 55. In fact, as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much higher his thoughts are than our thoughts. And that's how much higher his ways are than our ways. I heard Donald Miller say it this way. Like if this whole God thing is real in the first place and he really did make all of this and he really did create me, well, if that's true, he would have to be so far outside of me, so other, so beyond that I would not be able to understand the totality and complexity of him any more than the pancake I made for breakfast this morning can understand the totality and complexity of me. Church, he is not a God of confusion, but he is a God of mystery. And look right at me. You want him that way. You cannot worship a God you fully understand. Do not run from the mystery. It is in the mystery that you come face to face with your greatest fears and weaknesses and find out firsthand in that, that God, that Jesus is everything that you need and more than enough, more than enough. When you come face to face with your greatest fears, your heart is primed for wonder when you're face to face with your greatest weaknesses, your mind is primed for worship. When Jesus finally woke up from his nap and calmed the storm in that boat, the Bible says the disciples were horrified, they were terrified, and they marveled at the same time. They were afraid and they worshiped at the same time. I sometimes wonder if all wonder and worship happen right over all of our Christianese and simple answers we make up to avoid mystery at all costs? I don't know. I know Jesus is back from the dead. I know that. I know he's coming back one day. 
I know he is good. I know he's got all the math figured out. And as long as I know that and make sure you know that, really, that frees me up for a lot of other stuff to say, hey, I don't always know, but he does. So it's okay. The first thing Christians should say more often, I don't, I don't know. I don't always know. Number two, the second thing Christians should say more often, here we go, I can learn something from that person. I can learn something from that person. The day you stop learning is the day you start dying. Look at the Pharisee and the tax collector from our story. These two guys represent the polar opposite sides of a very familiar pendulum swing all of us find ourselves on in our hearts, okay? So the Pharisee, just go with me on this. The Pharisee represents legalism. What is legalism? Earning and deserving your way to God. Sort of this behavior modification outside in religion. And it's scary because if you're good at it, you can start to think and live like you don't need Jesus. And church, the worst thing in the world to be is not a sinner. It's somebody who thinks they don't need a savior, right? And then you've got the tax collector on the other side who represents lawlessness or licentiousness, living with that mindset that God's bottomless mercy means I don't got to change. All grace and no truth, which, by the way, is also not Christianity. Now, both of these men are desperately searching for something. They're just looking for it in different places. One of them is searching in rebellion. The other is searching for it in religion. Some of us grow up needing to be saved from sexual immorality and addiction and alcoholism and debauchery. And some of us grow up needing to be saved from church. But all of us, church, all of us need to be saved. Now, here's what I think. The Pharisee, I think the Pharisee, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Pharisee, I think he could stand to learn a thing or two from this tax collector, right? How about some grace, Mr. Pharisee? How about some humility? That'd be good for him. How about some desperation and brokenness and God dependency, right? All good and beautiful things that he does not have, that the tax collector has. I mean, the Pharisee is the bad guy in the story, right? Hey, be careful. Hating a Pharisee today is the fastest way to become the Pharisee tomorrow. So for the first time ever in preaching history, let's throw the Pharisee a bone right now. For the first time ever. I also think the tax collector could stand to learn a thing or two from the Pharisee. I mean, how about like truth? How about discipline and obedience and a love for, for righteousness? All beautiful things he doesn't have. In fact, I bet his life would get exponentially better spending one month with the Pharisee, right? All beautiful things that he doesn't have. It's so crazy. The, uh, the licentious free spirit can learn a thing or two from the rigid legalist and vice versa. I just love the fact that God like made us to need each other. Because both of these guys need something the other person has. I love that. So let's just take this framework, have some fun, and, and parallel it 
with the, the far right and the far left in our nation right now. Take a deep breath. Way out there, you can easily find a community in an echo chamber that's gonna reaffirm all your rightness about everything. Andy Stanley would say, man, you can raise a lot of money way out there. You can sell a lot of books way out there, but you can't solve problems out there. You can't grow out there. And the reason is because you can't learn something from that person out there. And that is why kingdom culture directly opposes cancel culture. If the king's not gonna cancel somebody from his kingdom, I don't get to cancel somebody from God's kingdom. And I'm not saying you, you, you agree with everything that that person says. Of course not. I'm saying, can you shake hands? Can you take the posture of maybe, just maybe, oh, just maybe, I can learn something from this person. Like you know that tax collector's life would be better. The Pharisee's life would also exponentially improve if he spent just one month with the tax collector. I kind of feel for this Pharisee because he has spent his entire life on the self-righteousness shame roller coaster. Self-righteousness and shame, where it's behavior-based, where if I'm doing good, me and God are good, but if I mess up, well, then I better, I better stay clear of God for a little bit. So I'm crushing Christianity this week. God must be pumped on me. Click, 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 click. Oh, self-righteousness. Oh, I messed up. Ah! He loves me not. Shame. Oh, but I'll get back at it. Okay, I'll crush Christianity again. Oh, he's pumped with me, self-righteousness. Oh, I messed up again. Shame. I'm in, I'm out. He loves me, he loves me not. And that's why this Pharisee is so miserable and miserable to be around. He's not kingdom culture. He doesn't walk into that temple and make people wonder about the kingdom with the words that he says. He's exhausted, Hang out with this guy. This tax collector walked out justified before God that day. Hey, Mr. Pharisee, if that guy can be justified before God, I promise you that you are. Oh, get off the ride. Rest in some grace. Stop trying so hard. Because Jesus has got this in the middle where truth says, hey, grace, come here. And grace says, hey, truth, Come here, grace and truth, love personified in the life of Jesus. I just think, man, how much more attractive, and I've been called on this in my life this week, like, like this week, how much more attractive would our kingdom culture be if Christians would say, I can learn something from non-Christians, Oh, I've been called on this so hard this week because I, I live next door to an atheist in Austin who could teach a master class to Christians about how to love their neighbors well. He's better at it than me. I'm the Jesus follower. Oh, I can learn something from that person, amen? That's the second thing Christians should say more often. I can learn something from that Person. Number three, the third thing Christians should say more often, here it is. It's gonna take more than that to offend me. Oh, it's gonna take more than that to offend me. Like, you wanna talk about how offensive 
this Luke chapter 18 story is, the Pharisee walked in intent on offending, I think, everybody in the temple. I mean, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was like trying to be a leader and a role model and walked in like, God, we got some lost people in here. God, lead them to me to follow my lead. I'll be your martyr. Thank God I'm awesome. You broke the mold when you made me, right? Thank God I'm not like this tax collector. Like he's trying to offend that guy outright in the house of God, right? Offenses, you guys, offenses have been around since Adam and Eve. Here's what Jesus said in Luke 17, one. Then Jesus said to his disciples, so he's talking to us, it is impossible. Now when the God who makes the impossible possible says something actually is impossible, my ears perk up. Okay, Jesus, what's impossible? Oh, that no offenses should come. That's impossible. If there's one thing you can count on, offenses will come. As surely as Ronnie Johnson will have a new hairstyle next month, church, offenses will come. They say we live in the age of offense. I I disagree. They've always been around. They will always be around. Now, I think we live in the age of offended. That's two different things. Robert Madu once said, offense is an event. Offended is a decision. Offenses are inevitable. Offended is completely optional, which means by the blood of Jesus, it's actually possible for me to just get on with my life, enjoying it without being offended. And I'm not great at this, so I've been speaking this over my life. It's gonna take more than that to offend me. Hey, guess who's got two thumbs and is unoffended? This guy. It's gonna take more than that to offend me. Offended people offend people. That's why I know this Pharisee's been offended before, probably by other Pharisees, because he's looking to offend, because he's insecure, because offenses, being offended makes you insecure. When you're insecure, you're more easily offendable. It's a downward spiral. It's a downward, a downward spiral. You get addicted. Listen to this. I don't know if this is prophetic or just, in my mind, a good observation, maybe somewhere on the spectrum in between, but I really, oh man, I really, really believe this. We get addicted to being offended because it makes you feel morally superior to that person or those people. Being offended, offenses are like drugs. And like any drug, sooner or later, you start to need more. And sooner or later, it's not just enough for you to be right. Now somebody else has to be wrong. Like it it begins to require an enemy. It requires a drug. I'm like, man, it's like we're living in a a new epidemic. We We are addicted to the offended high that we get when we smoke the offenses that come our way, which is why turning the other cheek feels a lot like withdrawals because we miss the buzz of bitterness. Man, so what do we do? Is there a solution? I'm so glad that you asked. I think Jesus is the one solution for this downward spiral of insecurity and being offended and needing to offend others. Because do you remember, do you remember in verse 14 what Jesus said about the tax collector? Here it is. I tell you, it was this man rather than the other, who went home justified before 
God. That guy went home justified, okay? So I picture that tax collector leaving the temple, like, skipping. So, like, he had just spent an hour being offended by the Pharisee, but he's walking home happy and unoffended. Why? Because he is justified before God, because that day began as the worst day of his life, a rock bottom, if you will, where my only option left is to walk into this temple where everything everybody hates about me and everything I've ever hated about myself is on display and I can't even look up to heaven. And in that moment of being fully known in every way possible, he also found out the greatest news ever, that in spite of everything, not because of how awesome he is, but in spite of all of his weaknesses and all the stuff he hates about him, he is, he is unconditionally loved by Jesus Christ in every way possible. I'm justified. Take the best shot that you got. He found out firsthand, my salvation is not dependent on human effort or logic. It is completely dependent on the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. So come what may, like it is finished and I am loved. And I'm not gonna be shocked at the world for acting like the world because it is finished and I am enough. And it's gonna take more than that to offend me, amen? Last but not least, the fourth thing Christians should say more often. And Dan, you guys can come up. I was wrong. Save the best for last. I was wrong. Luke 18, 14, the final thing Jesus said, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So ask my wife, I am a learn the hard way kind of guy. If you say, hey, don't touch that pan, it's hot. My mind immediately thinks, yeah, well, we'll see. Ah, dang it. Guys, don't touch that. It's hot. But some things, it's just, it's better to learn the easy way. This equation that Jesus just gave us is one of those things. Humble yourself, be exalted, Exalt yourself, be humbled. How many know it's better to live humble than to have to be humbled? And for proof on that, go watch The Office episode 16 of season three and watch what happens to Michael Scott at Phyllis's wedding as he tries to make somebody else's party about himself. He is living proof of what Jesus just said right here. And here's the thing. One of the easiest ways to just walk with humility is to talk with humility. One of the easiest ways that'll get you to talk with humility are these three words. I was wrong. I wonder when was the last time you said I was wrong? I was wrong about what I said. I was wrong about what I, what I did. Hey, remember when I said this about that person? Remember when I, when I posted that? Remember when I, I said this about God or that about politics? Yeah, my bad. Like, I, I've grown, and I want you to know I was wrong. My goodness, that is kingdom sexy. That is so paradoxical to how our world works. If you say those three words to the world, like they won't know what to do with you. They will be so floored, my goodness, and I bet your marriage would get better. I bet my marriage would get better. I bet your friend circle would double in a month. I bet you'd be a better leader. 
And I bet you'd be way more likable because that is an attractive posture. Anytime anybody's ever said that to you, I was wrong. Like what's your first like gut instinct? Oh, bro. <laughs> hey man, we're all wrong about so many things, dude. Get in here, man. I love you. Okay, think about this. Every saved Christian believes something about God that's wrong. From every denomination, every author you've ever read, me, you, all of us on our way to heaven believe something about the creator of the universe that's wrong. How much should that thought alone just unify us and and humble us. Maybe you have a wrong belief about God that keeps you from seeing and loving you the way God sees you and loves you. And maybe you think horrible and deplorable things about yourself because you, you think surely God's mad at me and surely he's disgusted with me and surely I'm the one who has shocked him with my ability to sin and surely he's done with me and my future and you are so wrong about God and about you. Hey, this is also true. You believe something about how the world works. That's wrong. I believe something about somebody, and it's wrong. You've taken a Polaroid snapshot of one bad moment of somebody's life, pinned it to your brain, and concluded, this is who you are, and this is your substance, and you are wrong. Every educated American believes at least, just give me one thing, one thing about politics, that's wrong. And if you disagree with me on that, I would check your heart and ask you, like maybe you made God in your image and not the other way around. I'm asking all of us this question right here. When was the last time God disagreed with you on something? I think we would all say like, yeah, God's Jesus take the wheel. He's got the wheel in my life. He's free to disagree. Okay, when was the last time he did? When was the last time Jesus crossed you in your life and called an audible. Man, I'm like, if it's like, if Jesus has never got up in your business and offended you a little bit and redirected you, I'm like, man, you might not like be in a relationship with him because he will do that on a fairly regular basis. I got called on that this week because I was praying for guidance, but I was being stubborn and I really felt last week, God said, buddy, don't ask me to guide you if you're not gonna be guidable. Easiest way to be guidable, can you say, I was, I was wrong. In the formative years of our faith, um, one of my best buds came to me, this was about 10 years ago, to get something off of his chest and he, uh, man, he had, uh, he had messed up and he, he uh, he slept with somebody and was feeling an overwhelming amount of shame and was trying so desperately just to like repent, was new to this whole faith thing and just trying to figure it out. We were doing this together, but in his moment of brokenness and bravery, he came to me needing me to be Jesus to confess this to me. And I, in this moment, completely dropped the ball. Like church, I've done so many stupid things in my life that really I feel like no shame about, but I'm embarrassed about this story right here. Because he was just trying to like move on and fall forward and find freedom and, and repent. 
And in like a nice way, I heaped more shame on him. And there's like the tough call out kind of space. This was not that, but that's what I, I kind of just was like, bro, you're like, this is ridiculous. You gotta be past this. Like, this is wrong. You are wrong. You wanna be a Christian leader one day. Well, it's not gonna happen like this. Like, come on, bro. Like, and I picked, I picked being right over being Jesus. Oh, it's a thing. I picked loving truth over loving my brother, also a thing. I picked the principle over the person. Once again, also a thing. I became like as if he didn't know all that stuff, right? I became the Pharisee in our story. Oh, thank God I'm not like this man, my buddy, who publicly messed up with a hookup. Thank God I only secretly struggled with porn and pain pills, that's way better. Like it's crazy how fast self-righteousness will get you to rank sin so you never have to say you were wrong. But man, about a week later, we had one of those conversations I will never forget so good because we came to each other, sat down on couches across from each other and both said, I, I was wrong, man. Hey, I was wrong, I I sinned, I messed up. Hey, (laughs) I was wrong, I misrepresented the heart of God. I was self-righteous and something like released and two things happened. We got closer as brothers and we understood the gospel more all because we could say, I was wrong, I was wrong. I heard Judah Smith say, hey, just use your imagination and imagine just over the past 100 years, that's it, just the last hundred years, if every father and mother and sister and brother and husband and wife and friend and teacher and coach and pastor and leader who was ever wrong about something just said, hey, I was wrong. My bad, that's on me. I could make excuses, but I won't. I'm gonna own it and then some. Even if it wasn't completely on them, you know who owned it when he didn't have to? Jesus. Hey, I was wrong. My goodness, the amount of pain, the amount of probably divorce and division that could be avoided. Just to say, I was wrong. My gosh, like how bad do you wanna hear just any politician ever say they were wrong about something? Like I would go to their house and be like, come here. Thank you. How much respect those three words gain you because of how human they they make you. Here's what I'm learning in the long run. Maybe not in the short, but in the long run. Human beings don't have nearly as much trouble with others' sin as we do with their inability to own that sin, right? Man, we don't need you always right. We want you always real. Church, this is such a beautiful place to be. Come on, everybody say, I was wrong. I was, oh, I was, I was wrong. It just feels like something releases just saying that. So there it is, the four things Christians should say more often. And when I first said that title, I bet you were thinking, oh, we're going to the mountaintop to shout some powerful truths. I am more than a conqueror. I am the head, not the tail. And absolutely, 100%, but that's not what we did. We took the low pass, and I'm gonna tell you why. There is a lot of noise in the world right now. Oh, opinions, people trying to be heard, 
clamor and murmur, people shouting, and I just believe these four things will paradoxically stand out because Jesus in his life paradoxically stood out. Church, it matters what we say. When we talk with the kingdom of heaven in mind, we create a kingdom culture on earth. It's the king who gets to choose the culture of his kingdom. These four things are straight from the life of Jesus. These four things straight up represent the heart of God. And so would you guys stand up just for the pat, the next three minutes, I'm almost done, but I wanted to just get our eyes fixed on our savior to look at Jesus full on in the face and see these four things in his life. Because honestly, right now, he's all we got, you guys. He's the only answer and he is the only hope right now. If you're desperate, that's not a bad place to be because you might just find yourself at the foot of the cross with your Savior. These four things straight from the life of Jesus. Okay, so I don't know. I don't know. Jesus was willing to limit himself and not know some stuff, if you can believe me on that. He actually cried with Mary and Martha after their little brother Lazarus died, even though he was hours away from resurrecting him. Like he knew he was gonna work it out for their good, but the God of everything remained in the pain and restricted his own omniscience to be with them. Like he, he, he gave up knowing everything for the sake of love, that is our savior. But was God teachable? Absolutely, Jesus was teachable. In fact, Jesus put himself in a position where he was forced to be taught by the very human beings who created him. So the God who was there in the beginning and hung constellations across the night sky became a baby dependent on the mothering capabilities of a 16-year-old girl. The God who was there in the beginning and spoke creation into existence with his words. Let Mary teach him how to say mama and dada. The Alpha and the Omega became a toddler who Joseph had to teach how to tie his sandals and hammer two boards together. Church, the ultimate master became the student. But was Jesus ever wrong? Oh, I'll do you one better. Jesus became wrong. So what do I mean by that? Well, sin is wrong. And the Bible says all have sinned and they've all fallen short of the glory of God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, he who knew no sin actually became sin. The one who never did anything wrong actually became wrong. And rather than considering his equality with God as something to be grasped, he played to lose so you and I could win. The highest became the lowest. Church, he made himself nothing, gave up his rightness, became wrong with God so you could be right with God. And to top it all off, was not offended by doing any of it. Church, the guy did nothing wrong his entire life. All he did was heal people, man. All he did was love people and save people and so many hated him for it. So much so that they arrested him and falsely tried him and stripped the clothes off of him and flogged him and beat him and jeered at him and mocked him and laughed at him and crucified him and shoved a sponge soaked with vinegar into his mouth. And meanwhile, he's praying for them and saving them. I'm thinking, my goodness, this Jesus is tougher than the very nails they drove through his hands and his feet. Church, our kingdom's king has no rival. 
He has no equal. He has no beginning and no end. And he shall reign forever and ever and ever. And I pray in Jesus' name. I pray, I pray in Jesus' name that through our kingdom culture and our kingdom culture and the way that we talk and the way that we walk and the way that we're willing to lose so they can win and the willing, the willingness to go low, that the world would know that Jesus is God and that the world would wonder about this kingdom and that the name Jesus would continue to get more and more and more beautiful and that as we worship, every soul would hear the sound of heaven roaring, the praise of his glory. In Jesus' name, somebody say amen. Red Rock Church, let's worship.